You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode two, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Maggie Jackson, author of Distracted, The Erosion of Attention in the Coming Dark Age, first published in 2009. Maggie Jackson is an award-winning author and former Boston Globe columnist known for her penetrating coverage of social issues, especially technology's impact on humanity. Her essays and articles have appeared in publications worldwide, including the New York Times, Business Week, Utney, and on National Public Radio. Fast Company likened Maggie Jackson's book, Distracted, to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring as the first wake-up call to our technological excesses. Distracted was also hailed by The New Yorker as the influential book on distraction. We're extremely pleased to welcome Maggie Jackson to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Good morning, Maggie. It's great to have you on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast today. Well, it's a wonderful topic and title, and I'm delighted to be with you here. Thanks so much. And it's really fitting to have you uh, as our first guest on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, given that you were the first person to write deeply about the topic of attention and distraction in connection with digital technology. Your book, Distracted, was really prescient when it was published back in 2009, which is ages ago in internet time. Uh, I remember that at that time, everyone was jumping on the multitasking bandwagon, was cheerleading all of the benefits of being connected all the time and everywhere. And you were really the first person to to wave a big red flag about the downside, and you called it even the dark side of being constantly connected. And since that time, many other people have written about this, and there have been many findings in psychology and neuroscience that have confirmed what you observed and what you predicted would happen. More people are now acknowledging the problems with multitasking and social media. And in light of that, background and history, I wonder whether you could talk a bit about what motivated you to write about this way back when, what it was like to be writing and speaking about this as a, as a lone voice at the time, and perhaps what's changed in the broader culture, maybe in your own thinking, uh, and how things have evolved since then. Sure, yes. No, I think those are important questions, because as we try inch by inch and, um, you know, send by send button to gain perspective on our technologies, we have to look back and look forward and take a step back and ask ourselves these questions. Um, And that's exactly why I wanted to start in on understanding technology's impact on human life and day-to-day life. Um, I had come from a background where I was a foreign correspondent for many years in Europe and in uh, Asia. Uh, I then started one of the first, if not the first, columns in the United States devoted to uh, work-life balance. So I was really one of the first to write about that. And then I wanted to be (laughs) writing about technology's impact way back in the late 90s uh, on family life, on our workplaces. Um, But at the time, actually, the conversation was really dominated by you know, you might say geeks, um, by people who wrote about the objects, the hardware, the software, um, by people who were um, really closely related to the inventors. And that's something that's historically true going back into the 19th century, as the historian Carolyn Marvin has wonderfully outlined in her book, uh, in one of her books. And, you know, so the inventors dominate the conversations often in history. Um, You'll find that with the telephone, etc., Um, And that's about where I gained interest. And I wanted to I wanted to say or to write about or to think about why we weren't understanding anything beyond the so-called magic. You know, there was um, a lot of discussion about, gee whiz, what can it do Um, and not what it will do to us or how it's influencing us. 
Um, and I thought that I was really uh, very determined or or motivated by the idea that English majors or parents or the average person should have a voice at the table of this new age, this new transitional age, um, and that basically we shouldn't be listening only to what inventors or programmers thought about the usage of these instruments and these tools in our lives. Um, you know, we had the boxes in in many uh, often, but didn't really often know what to do. I mean, one prime example is I was trying to write about a second wave of the digital divide. This is in the mid to about 2005, 2006 when I was on a fellowship. Um, you know, again, the boxes or the computers had been distributed to low income neighborhoods uh, and yet they weren't being used. They weren't being fixed. And in particular, technological savvy wasn't being you know, distributed as well or taught. And so the promise was being broken and no one wanted to print that story. So we had very narrow perceptions of what technology was. And that's one reason I wanted to um, write about this. And what I've seen today, which is really I mean, what I've seen over the years, which is really interesting, is that, you know, again, as so often happens with the adoption of technologies, there's a gee whiz, there's a kind of a black and white thinking, the Luddite versus the early adopter. And then there's a more a maturation of the conversation. Anyhow, I think that we might be tiptoeing toward some, if not maturation, at least a complexity in the um, tenor of the conversation that we're having. You know, and, and one marker of that is that people are uneasy. As you mentioned so rightly, multitasking was at first... Um, you know, considered a job description. It was the new, new thing. It was the new normal. And then people began to feel um, partly backed by the early research that this couldn't be done now. Of course, we'll talk about that in the conversation um, today, but the research absolutely shows that it very, very often can't be done. Um, but, you know, these sorts of new uh, complexities and contradictions and nuances of the conversation are really important. You know, 70% of people now say the net has boosted the quality of their life, but the an equal number say that they believe the net and technology today has made us lazy and distracted. So you can see the tension right there. Um, and I think it's really important that we now have more voices at the table, um, that we're not, we're getting beyond the Luddite versus um, you know, adopter status, and that we're opening our eyes to layers and degrees of complexity. For instance, degree of use, um, habits infiltrating our lives and how we use these objects as they become more familiar and more invisible to us, which is actually a danger point. Um, you know, how our thinking changes we're on, we're on, when we're on the very template-oriented internet. Um, mm -hmm. We are really inserting ourselves into the thinking of of the creation of someone else with far less creativity and individual ability originality in that interaction than we conceive um, you know and then the devices themselves how as they're changing we have to keep up with how they're impacting us and finally we need to be zooming out and understanding the context for instance, in children, the debate about children and media, it was very often, what's the, what's the content on the TV? Well, now there's a whole field of research related to background TV running in the four hours a day. Children, most children on average are, um, are exposed to four hours of mm. background TV just running in the background. And that lowers parental conversation, you know, learning of words, et cetera, et cetera. So the layering, the use, the context, the environment that we're creating, all this has to be added. It's, it's a steep learning curve, um, but I am heartened that we're getting beyond the, gee whiz, what can it do perspective? Yeah, I, I hear you raising many important topics. One of them is uh, the tendency that many of us often have promoted by the technology industry to, to focus our attention on the technical features of the devices. And it sounds like you're, you're pushing us to 
focus on the impact that devices have on people or on how we interact with them, not just on the devices themselves. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I think that one of the mark, you know, one of the main points or intentions of the technology industry, and this isn't wrong, it's quite natural, and I'll say why in a minute, is the idea of seamlessness. So that's an incredibly important um, aspect of our technological use today that is, I think, very little talked about. Now, um, you know, you can look at the Apple ads and et cetera, you know, this is it, this is the experience. You know, we, the, the technology, I mean, people are explicit. The technology should be invisible. It should be just part of the fabric, literally now in your clothing of our lives, et cetera, et cetera. But this seamlessness uh, now on the good side, we're talking, of course, about augmented cognition and uh, homo faber, the, you know, the human as the tool user, the, the hammer and the carpenter, the haptic bond between pilots and their planes and people and their horses. You know, this is all part of the, you know, progress or the strengths of humanity. Absolutely. But you know, we're not just talking about a hammer. We're talking about a, a super normal, pulsing, cognitive-oriented, prosthetic mind um, that we're becoming increasingly blended with. And I think that is very difficult to gain perspective on. So we, uh, I think, need to do a far better job at stepping back and understanding the boundaries between the devices uh, even those we most want to imbibe or become, you know, have a have a in very intensely symbiotic relationship with, we need to gain perspective. The tools are not going to give perspective to us on the tools. We're the only creatures actually can, that can have perspective. I might be proven wrong in terms of a one or you know a dolphin <laughs> having said that. Really, we're, we're maybe among the only creatures on this earth that can have perspective on ourselves and on these devices. We can't give up that battle to have perspective. It's, it's interesting. It sounds to me like um, you're talking about the fact that being distracted by technology can often impede people from even stepping back and thinking about the technology more broadly, and that we need to be able to pay some deep attention to the broader impacts of the technology uh, so that we can participate in how it's developed and and how we use it. It was something you mentioned earlier about the fact that people who use technology you know, often aren't really involved in having a voice, I think is the term you used, in how it's developed or promoted. And you're, you're pointing out it can be difficult for people to even formulate their voice uh, if they're not thinking critically or if they're distracted all the time. I mean, am I understanding you correctly? Yes, I think that has, this has everything to do with distraction. The challenge of gaining perspective um, has everything to do or the fact that we are uneasy and yet not really truly doing a better job at both understanding and using these tools has everything to do with the way we live highly distracted lives. Um, you know, the, the, um, you know, just talk about the, for a moment, the historic, I think the distraction we're seeing has a great deal to do with the historic changes to the human experience of space um, so that from cues of sun and season to the controlling of time that we experience in the industrial age, you could, you know, preserve the voice through the phonograph or run a moment backwards in the cinema. This, you know, uh, elevation of our experience of time um, to a controlling idea uh, has then morphed into this kind of unfettered idea of, of layering time. So, you know, we seem to be masters of, mm -hmm. of time and, the, and, and, and what we do as well as, you know, the, the proponents of collapsing distance and not suffering duration. So I'm just throwing out a lot of different ways, I think, lenses to see what the devices have done. And this has a great deal to do with this blurring, this boundarylessness, instantaneity, 
um, has affected, as we all feel, how we think and how we can pay attention. And, you know, one of the most robust, if not, I think the biggest impact of these changes has been through the fracturing of um, the moment of our attentional. And it's really interesting to think about that. Well, you know, multitasking has is is still a top it's kind of old news but yet i think that when you look at multitasking writ large as the fragmentation of time the fragmentation of task the fragmentation of relationships i mean this is a, a very central reason why we can't be doing that great um thinking and and you know maybe you have a question about this multitasking i think it's really important yeah, let's talk about multitasking. I, I've seen as well that there is more acceptance now that multitasking is not always the best thing to do. And yet it seems that a lot of people still have the intuitive feeling that if they're doing multiple things at once, they must be more productive. And even if they don't have that thought or feeling, many people, myself included, still do it. Uh, we still, our behavior is still to multitask, even if we know intellectually that it's not necessarily the right thing to do. But so we might have reached a point of ambivalence now. I'm wondering if you could, at least for those people who aren't familiar with really the, the downsides of multitasking, talk a bit about why we at least need to think really carefully about whether to do it and what the harms of it can be. Sure. Um, yes, I think that originally we didn't really have the research to back up our, um, you know, our understanding of what multitasking is. I mean, even though there have been psychological studies going back actually to 1902 related to, you know, what's called dual tasking or task switching, et cetera. Um, you know, the knowledge actually was kind of there. It didn't, you know, bleed into the public really until um, people. And I was looking back at uh, databases to see it wasn't I couldn't find a reference to human the multitasking that we think of now um, until about 2008. Previously, it really was a computer term. And, um, you know, right from then and there, there were tiny little people, you know, tiny voices or some pushback. <laughs> A little bit, um, you know, as you mentioned, um, quite a bit by me. Um, but, you know, so it's, it's a kind of a new thing and the research has followed. Um, you know, basically people switch tasks every three minutes at work and half of the interruptions that, that are, you know, the, the, the task switching involves are self, um, are, are self-made. You know, so I just want to stop there for a second because it's it's such a shocking statistic to say that all, you're saying office workers or maybe even other workers, when they're engaged in a task, will actually switch from what they're doing every three, four minutes. Yes. I mean, they could be working on one project and still switching between it. Um, you know, we but but yes, that, that is the best research so far by Gloria Mark at UC Irvine. Um, she, and what was new about it was she went into the field. This is not laboratory research. And she's done study after study that shows that that level of interruption and fragmentation is related to stress and uh, frustration. Um, it, she's uh, taken, you know, people had people voluntarily stop email just for a week and found that their productivity and their ability to stay on target, in other words, to you know, to have a kind of a journey or a progression or a, um, a thread of meaning throughout a, a, um, a project or a task is highly, much more elevated as well. They actually communicated just as often and just as well with their coworkers. I mean, no one's trying to say take away email, <laughs> but mm -hmm. nevertheless, it just shows the degree of fragmentation. Um, and, you know, there's studies that show that when people are, this is so normal now that, you know, when you're on your laptop and you're watching TV, um, people switch attention up to 120 times an hour. Um, and, you know, 70% of emails on average are open in six seconds. I mean, the list can go on and on. And of course, we recognize this. We recognize this picture of fragmentation. Um, and, you know, there are two points. One is that these studies, studies, 
that show uh, the degradation of attention related to multitasking have been followed by now a, a revealing picture of what happens when we multitask all the time. So the, I think that's the most interesting. We're beginning to see hints of what the long-term effects are when this is the steady diet of our lives. You know, for instance, the late Clifford Nass, the amazing pioneering yes. scientist, yes, at, at, at Stanford, did work on, um, you know, heavy versus light multitaskers and how they dealt with their environment. Uh, he really broke ground. And, and one of the takeaways there is that the heavy multitaskers actually couldn't multitask as well. Um, you know, he called them suckers for irrelevancy. It's now thought that their broad, broad, broad attentional scope was actually working against them so that therefore they were so much was coming at them or they were trying to take in so much by hopping around that they actually couldn't focus or discern what was important in their environment, which is huge. Um, and a second body of work, which is really interesting, is related to multitasking and memory. And this is really important in a world where instantaneity often means ephemerality, um, both in terms of the content uh, you know, that we're dealing with, but also you know, our minds. And this long-term, re this research shows that when people are multitasking while trying to learn, you know, just take mm -hmm. in information, that they're actually using parts of their brain related to automatic behavior. Um, and what that means is the hippocampus, the seat of long-term memory and, and also discernment of new experiences, that system, hippocampal system, is not being used. So the brain is trying desperately to keep up with this deluge uh, and not able to. Now, the clincher is that the memory... Let me, let me just make sure I understand what you're saying, that, that when we're all bouncing from an email to an article on the web to Facebook and bouncing back and forth and flitting all over, we're not able to form long-term memories of the information we're absorbing? Is that what you're saying? Yes, less so. The information that we're absorbing is more ephemeral, uh, it'll disappear more quickly in plain language. Um, and what's really a clincher is that we are that the information that we do imbibe um, that what what we are learning. Say you're at a conference, you listen to a speaker, you're multitasking your way, checking your email the entire time. Yeah, you might pick up on what that speaker has said, but in a very shallow way. And that information will be stored in places where it's less connected to the rest of your knowledge structures. So the information that you pick up when you're uh, multitasking is less flexible. There's less transfer of knowledge. It's uh, Think of an analogy of a child multitasking their way through their math problems, those word problems that at least I always really didn't, didn't get as a kid. And so they can do the word problem if it shows up the next day on the quiz, but they will not be able to flexibly transfer the rules or the ideas behind that, the word problems, to a word problem that's slightly different. So you're stuck with very rigid knowledge that is basically not able to be drawn upon uh, in a creative way. Or, hey, say the surgeon multitasked their way through a certain uh, lecture and med school on suturing. Well, or bleed, you know, bleeding in the operating room, then they come to the crisis moment. Well, they might be able to understand, you know, what the textbook thing to do is, but not have that creative problem solving in a crisis that allows them to connect different new knowledge, think on their feet, etc. This is huge. This is really huge. It means that we're stuck on the surface in a steady way throughout the day and that going forward we're not able to um you know really use our knowledge um creatively which is uh you know which is <laughs> when we're facing the problems of the day that's a real albatross i wonder if this also means whether people are more likely to absorb this kind of information less critically uh, take it at face value uh, when they are multitasking and absorbing it uh, in the way you're talking about. Is that true as well? 
Yes, bingo. Yes, that's a fantastic question. That's very, very important. Um, you know, this, what your question does is connect to a different kind of idea of cognition, you know, something we perhaps we've all heard of. We have quick and slow minds. Um, the quick mind is, you know, a pattern maker, a survival oriented. You know, we jump to a conclusion based on what we our experience shows. I think that's, um, you know, the right chess move. I think that's what I did in the past. The slow mind is the reflective mind. And, you know, time after time, the slow mind is, is the reflective mind. And that's the um, mind that we evolve to use in crisis or murky or muddy or new situations, the kind of situations we face all the time, every single day, in which we kind of need to to break from the routine. Well, when you're multitasking, when you're dr- distracted all the time, you're using more of that quick mind. You're really miring yourself. You're sticking close to the coastline of, of, of your old knowledge. You're not allowing yourself the time. You're not allowing yourself the cognitive ability to capacity to, um, you know, to basically launch into this uh, place of reflective thinking. Um, just one example is when you're consciously aware of something, when you're really focusing on it, now it's known that um, basically you, that's an extraordinary moment in the brain. And, you know, they, they, it's, it's one of the most astonishing findings of recent years that the brain is highly connected, all parts of the brain when we're really focusing on something and it creates what is called the global workspace. Mm. That's the space when you begin to can begin to reason and understand and see nuance and pick up on contradiction and turn the problem around in your mind. If you are simply just buzzing by things and half aware and you know rushing and multitasking and using less of your brain, you're actually, you know, really only able to confirm often you end up confirming what you already know, confirmation bias, and you but you're just not able to pick up on nuance and contradiction. Think of it as like the mind as a train, you know, and as you look out of the train at 70 miles an hour, the landscape is a blur. If you're going 10 miles Mm -hmm. an hour walking or stopping Mm -hmm. at a station, suddenly the landscape. So this is a perceptual challenge and it's a reflective challenge. And by constantly, I mean, I could go on. There's, there are many more, um, you know, many more downsides to this kind of, multitasking and distraction and it 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 does it does fit back with what we've been talking about which which is the fracturing of life the fragmentation what i call the integrity of the moment is broken when you're multitasking all the time I wonder if we can uh, talk about some some concrete examples. Everything you're talking about makes me think of some recent current events, specifically all of the controversy over so-called fake news. Uh, and, you know, I imagine uh, when people are reading on Facebook and seeing ads or headlines out of the corner of their eye, uh, maybe not paying close attention to them, but getting exposed to this information frequently, I uh, have to wonder whether there, people are more likely to absorb that information uncritically as true, even if it's patently false. I think that's very likely, highly likely. And I mean, the other interesting aspect of how the mind meets, I mean, and I'll just underline again, underscore again, you know, think of your relationship with the machine and the content that you're looking at, you know, when we're on a so-called online or digital page, um, there's a very hyper-fractured nature of that experience. Hyper-linked websites, the more cluttered they are, are um, related to lower comprehension and recall. Um, So, yes, that experience, we, we studies show that 80% 80% of people skim their way through whatever they read digitally. They're not only catching uh, 20% of words on the page. So you have this, you know, narrow experience, which is hyperfractured. Zoom out. And of course, you're also looking at the TV 
um, or multi, uh, juggling multiple different medias, couple phones, um, you know, another laptop, maybe um, these, mm-hmm. you know, there's a fractured environment, which is also, you know, again, we've talked about those downsides. So, yes. Um, and one thing that's really, really interesting is the brain Doubt is actually something that comes second. And we know there's work by Dan Gilbert, the great happiness researcher up at Harvard. Um, some of his early work, which I think is really fascinating, shows that the mind believes before it doubts. That this has been actually a, a kind of a, a question throughout philosophy for a long time. But in any case, um, that's why children are gullible. That's why, you know, if I tell you that a shark has four legs, in the Amazon uh, somewhere, there's a shark species of that kind. At first, you're going to picture it, and you're going to be thinking about it as if it's true, and then, only then, can you begin to think and doubt. So, you know, the fact that we split from flip, from fact to fact, and in this fractured environment um, means that we are far more gullible, far more gullible. And in fact, studies of time pressure or flux, etc., um, you know, show that that's what happens to people. They, you know, leap to a conclusion. They are far less critical and they then, you know, protect what they, their conclusions are rather than um, understanding. And it's really interesting because I've done a little reading about Darwin's habits of mind and he had what he calls the golden rule, which I think is really wonderful. Of course, he did a tremendous amount of research he had an international, um, you know, course, uh, you know, habit of correspondence with people all over the world, which which was, you know, <laughs> really pretty much a networked society of his own. I mean, they weren't in the dark ages, as we sometimes think. Um, and in any case, he had a golden rule in which whenever he came across uh, any fact which contradicted his current hypothesis, he made sure to write it down because he knew that he'd be more likely to, to not remember, uh, to basically try to forget unconsciously, mm-hmm. you know, what differed from his opinion. So all of what we're talking about has a tremendous, I see it huge, it's not even a dotted line, it's like just a clear, clear line between the way we're living and the society that we've produced in terms of intolerance, in terms of shallow level of discussions, polarization, I you know I don't think technology and these habits have kind of fallen off the radar screen in the last few months because of the crisis nature of what's gone on in our country and the world, and yet the these discussions related to distraction, technology, devices, etc., should be still very essential in our thinking because that's why I think we are so mired in the in the shallowness that we see everywhere you know you you just started to touch a little bit with the darwin example on things that people could possibly do for themselves to help regain some attention and protect against distraction sometimes when i think about the problem or just experience it every day it can feel overwhelming you know what can we do against all of this technology that's designed to capture our attention from us. You know, you mentioned earlier the the quote average person. What what can the average person who's not designing technology and may not be a super user who knows how to tweak it or change it, but really whose only choice is to use the technology or not? You know, do you have some suggestions for things that? Let's start with what individual people could do to help uh, regain some attention, be more thoughtful, be able to cultivate uh, critical thinking and creativity while having to live with and use technology. Sure. No, I think that the problems seem large, but in there, it, what's heartening is that there is so much that we can do that are very small steps. Uh, and that was true when I was writing about work-life balance. You know, st- small steps, small part portions of flexibility make a big difference in family life. And I think that's really heartening. Um, I'll also say that the unease people are feeling 
is really a marker of the first, that's the first threshold moment toward reflecting. I think as a society, Mm -hmm. if we are uneasy, that shows we are trying to gain perspective. um, And that's really important. Um, You know, one very small thing we can do is, you know, take small breaks. Now, I mean, not just turn it off, turn it away, um, but also, you know, to pause and reflect. So there are two different types of breaks I'm talking about. One is that kind of emptying or changing gears in an intentional way, not in a multitasking, hopscotching way. But you can pause for pausing for a minute before you start a new project is actually related to boosted boosted creativity, um, according to Harvard work by Teresa Amabile, mm. one of the greatest creativity researchers in the world. Um, and and in studies of students, uh, one minute tech break, so taking, you know, again stepping back from the from the computer. Uh, or the smartphone for one minute every 15 minutes while doing a project has shown to bolster attention and learning. So, you know, it is so the, the allure and the seamlessness are very, very hard to break. But if we can take and don't think of this as in another interruption or a fracturing of your focus, you're getting a lot done on screen because basically you're changing gears in order to either give the topic a rest, which means your unconscious is still thinking about it, or you're giving the topic a rest in order to take a walk, etc., while still thinking about it. That's absolutely fine. You're thinking about it in an un- unencumbered way or maybe hopefully in a more, um, in, in, you know, a moment with more integrity. So I think these are, that's, these are very small steps. We don't have to do the two-week detox camp rounded in California and, you know, that sort of monastical, which is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, people love that. But I don't think we have to think about it as some sort of eco adventure, extreme sport, you know, turning turning off the technology for a moment. Um, this can be woven into our lives. Um, you know, the second thing I think which is very, very, very important, especially when we are inhabiting the Internet, uh, when we are, again, very linked to the machine is just to constantly think, evaluate, evaluate, evaluate. Um, you know, the first answer, you know, the surfaces from the quick mind, the first impressions that we have are plausible and neat and mostly off track. That's we have a mind, a skeptical side to us. Well, we need to use it. I mean, if I come across information, even of a scientific study that I might find on Google Scholar you know, it might be even from a great university. I do far, far more, double to triple about the the amount of time spent evaluating a piece of research than I do in finding more research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that kind of selectivity, I think people have this fear of missing out. They have this idea that they're not keeping up. They're trying to run in place. They're trying to drink from the fire hose. That's still a huge problem multitasking is fueled by it. But at the same time, you know, with less uh, data, you can actually make more conclusions if you allow yourself and if you practice that kind of evaluative skill. And that, that couldn't be more important. You, you wrote in Distracted uh, about this increasing tendency, uh, particularly amongst the next generation, to do writing primarily by gathering information and dumping it essentially unfiltered into a PowerPoint presentation or something else, often copying from Wikipedia or another place. It really struck me. You gave an example where you said students were interviewed, and if there was some sort of nonsense information somewhere in the presentation that they had clearly just cut and pasted without thinking about it, and they were asked, why is that there? They would say, I don't know, mm-hmm. even though they had written this presentation or report. Uh, I'm sure this applies to adults as as well, but is this the kind of thing you're thinking about needing to address this, this sort of unfiltered, automatic uh, habit now that many of us have of 
seeking out, searching for, copying information and, and doing it in an uncritical way. And, I, and then the follow-up question to that is, uh, what can you suggest, particularly with respect to the next generation who doesn't have a previous background or experience in ever doing anything in a different way than this? Right, right. No, those are, that's great. That's great questions. I mean, you, we're really talking about information literacy. And if, if we are able to garner a moment's focus, well, then, you know, what what is the product of that? What is the impact? And how can we then link that to a better a, a better skill set at, at uh, thinking? You know, how can we rekindle um, basically our powers of reflection uh, that are so, so sorely needed? And I think that um, it's it's a really important challenge. I mean, one recent study I saw showed that of the 250 students who I believe were in middle school, might have been in high school, um, they could only answer, and they were asked to evaluate information found on the web about an energy drink, you know, a very simple Mm -hmm. research Mm -hmm. task. Only 20% could answer questions correctly related to the bias of the source, um, the, you know, where it came from, what the information was really saying. So their evaluation uh, studies have shown that you know younger generations' ability to evaluate is is extremely low. Um, you know I think that we need to start in many ways with having conversations like these in which we you know step back and make more explicit some of the meta ideas behind uh, this. You know that goes along with being co- uh, skeptical, of course, but um, you know understanding what it is that we're looking at how it is when you're on match.com that by filling in this profile, you're shifting your identity toward the values of match.com and not yourself. It might not prevent you from, you know, walking Mm -hmm. on that website, but having an understanding about that is really important to, you know, it drives back to what we were talking about about seamlessness. So I think with children, especially there needs to be far more time making explicit what our habits are, uh, what our intentions, what our values are. And even if we don't have all the answers, in some ways, it might be common sense, you know, the TV in the crib. Well, is it really going to help (laughs) baby Mozart with uh, vocabulary? Or is it siphoning time away from the conversations and the human interaction Mm -hmm. with that child needs. I mean, that's, that can be often common sense. Um, one study, which was really interesting to me, found that, um, you know, a better use um, of the internet by children, you know, less porn, you know, less kind of violent sites, use of violent sites, et cetera, just better habits was related to not the kind of rules that parents had at home, but whether or not they had any. And, you know, whether or not there had been some some discussion for children related to the idea of, well, we do have a stand on this. You don't you're not out there in the great boundaryless chaotic seas alone. We have a practice related to this. I think that's very, very, very important. That gives us a kind of so if we step back as adults, say I have a certain value related to when I use the internet at night or how I use the internet to, um, you know, how I use my phone at the table. What are, what are, what are our values related to that? There's a certain morality here, I think. Yeah. Uh, I remember, uh, uh, the author of uh, Sleeping With Your Smartphone, she was a business consultant, yeah. uh, Leslie Perlow, talking about even groups of people uh, doing it. Uh, I've certainly found that when I individually try to um, impose rules about using technology, it can be hard when other people aren't doing the same thing. If I say I'm not going to answer email from three to five in the afternoon, uh, that may be really difficult when my colleagues or customers or friends or family uh, all expect it of me. Um, and you know, she had suggested in the business context that p- people as a group, uh, for example, agree that they won't contact each other at certain times 
in part to relieve that social pressure uh, that if we agree we're not going to text each other from 6 to 10 on Wednesdays, then people won't in that group won't feel pressured to check a text because they know everyone else has made the same uh, commitment. And I'm raising this you know, to move up from the, the individual level where you're making some great suggestions about what people do to the family, uh, company, organization, and perhaps even you know broader society level. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, no, I think those are really important points. I mean, one very important finding from Leslie Perlow's work was that, um, first of all, uh, the work she did at the Boston Consulting Group started off very small. So she, you know, had to work hard, but convinced the consultants to, you know, these management consultants who work like maniacs and never felt like it, they could take any time off. She um, ultimately convinced them to take one night off each a week uh, and yes. to and to change change it up so that you were covering for each other. You know, that was just that in itself changed how they work and gave them so much more energy. Um, you know, so that's really important. I think that beyond the veneer of the always on, the necessity of always on uh, lies a real yearning to somehow break up that system or to turn down the volume on that system. I think, you know, you might just find this with teenagers who want the rules uh, related to texting at the table, or you want that you find that in your team when everybody gets beyond the, um, you know, kind of empty talk of we're always so busy and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that by having the courage to voice these ideas and to start small, then um, people can be making and, and finally, any change in life, and this is just extremely important, I see it as a matter of tinkering. We don't have to bite off everything, make the big fix, change our lives, etc., reinvent ourselves tomorrow. Tinkering means experimenting. That means getting feedback from that uh, meeting without uh, multitasking, without everybody put their phone by the door as as happened in the Obama White House meeting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we do that, when we experiment and then talk about it and then adjust and then tinker and go forward that way, well, then there's a lot less of a win or lose at stake. And we can then begin to make do, it's, it's kind of doing it in a, in a kind of organic way. And so changes to our life can be made like that. Yeah, make small changes, observe observe the results, talk about it and revisit and as you said, not try to to do so much at once that you maybe set yourself up for failure. Right, exactly. And um, you know, one interesting um, you know, sort of line of research I've been interested in group creativity for the new book I'm doing on the reflective mind. And it's really interesting. I mean, everyone's all known about groupthink and everyone knows about the perils of that. Um, but it's really interesting to see what dissent um, does for a group or a team. Um, someone who just simply, I mean, isn't openly rebelling and refusing all technology, et cetera, but just voices a different opinion. That actually leads to uh, more information search on the part of all members. In other words, it leads to more reflection. So, I mean, we can see that throughout society. The Gandhis, the Eleanor Roosevelt's of the world um, have always been the ones who have turned people's heads a little and given them a new perspective. And, 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 and isn't this a matter of maybe taking responsibility, not just letting life wash over us as it is, I, I hear the, this phrase less and less, but for a long time I heard the phrases uh, related to technology, well, there's nothing we can do. This is the way it is. And I have to hardly vehemently disagree. That's like saying my vote doesn't count in an election. And right. we all can make take these small steps and do it together and make it explicit. Uh, and bosses, uh, you know, people who are in charge, managers, et cetera, have a particularly important responsibility if they don't want their teams and, and workers to burn out or miss the nuance or, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or become uh, victims of, of multitasking minds. 
if they want all that, they really have a responsibility in particular to make these discussions and stop fearing the great, um, you know, productivity God or redefine what productivity is. Um, I, you know, I spent time with a surgeon up in, um, in Toronto who's really kind of shaking up the surgical world. And she is actually calling for a new idea of what expertise in surgery is. And that is to import uncertainty or thoughtfulness. Now, this flies, as you might know, completely in the face of the identity of any surgeon on earth. They're schooled for quick decision making, which often fails in a crisis. The point here is that, hey, you know, we can see productivity in a very different light if we wish to. And and if we wish to just make the first couple of steps we're turning now to the the newer work that you're doing, which is leading to a book I believe will be published later this year uh, called Beyond Certainty. It picks up, I think, where your last book left off. I have to say, in, in Distracted, um, which had the phrase coming of a dark age in the subtitle, uh, you know, a good part of it could lead someone to be fairly pessimistic about where we were heading, but you did leave off on a, a positive or potentially hopeful note at the end of distracted. Uh, and you even said that you believed a, and you called it a renaissance of attention was within our grasp. So I wonder if you can uh, you know, talk a little bit about what it is that you see that's hopeful in light of, all of the challenges we face with attention and distraction in the face of technology, and then how that relates to your the newer work that you're doing now. Sure. I'm, I, I remain, I guess, given the society and the problems we face today, I remain highly, highly concerned and alarmed. And I think many others would share that view, um, if not even more so. I think actually... A dark age is not alarmist in the in the slightest when we look at the world around us. Um, however, that does not mean that you know there aren't places for hope. And this unease, this maturation of the discussion regarding technology, is I think really important. Um, again, you know, trying to detox from phones, digital detoxes, um, you know, Facebook sabbaticals, or you know, these sorts of riffling type of experimentations are very important. Um, and the reason I began to write a book on reflection was really the question, when you have a moment's focus, if we can regain our skills of attention, which are related to actually focus, awareness, and then executive attention, if you can regain or practice these skills, uh, be a more aware of what science tells us about the, their workings, um, then what do you do with them? So the obvious answer was to turn to a different skill set, which is thinking. Um, and I think, yes, we talk about critical thinking in schools and we try to, you know, brush up against these sort of issues. But I'm really interested in the kind of experiential, phenomenological, if you will, idea of what it means to think and reflect, uh, again, in ways that are woven back into our day. So, you know, what does it mean to creatively problem solve when you're a scientist in a lab or a business executive? And what is the difference between mind wandering and really creative daydreaming, which is absolutely uh, incredibly important. So I'm, I'm kind of parsing different forms of reflection in our society, seeing what the obstacles are to doing them, looking at the latest cognitive science and coming up with some really amazing, amazing revelations related to the practice and skill and, of thinking and what it means to, um, you know, to just begin to, um, you know, understand how to um, become aware of your more aware of your surroundings to, I call it, um, you know, in another chapter, I talk about the so-called fallow hour, which is my word for those pauses, those rests, those, those the, the, you know, what sleep does to memory. Um, you know, these are all incredibly important, um, you know, ways in which we we can become a more thinking society. And what is uh, in really, as I mentioned, the threshold to all of this is the willingness to un uh, to withstand uncertainty. 
the narrowness, the, the, the shallowness, the cowardice of certainty of the, of the quick conclusion um, is anathema to that kind of risk-taking that reflection really is. You know, re- reflection, I'm trying to talk to people about restoring the process into thinking. It's not always comfortable, but uh, the, there is a process to this type of, um, to this type of thinking. And that's something that when we, when we value what is quick and automatic and neat and instant in, in our lives, we're valuing what is, uh, you know, the, the definition of a machine. That also speaks very directly to that side of us, which does jump to conclusions uh, and lacks skepticism. So there's a whole side of us which is forgotten when we have this symbiosis with the machine. And I think it's right there. Uh, again, you know, there's a renaissance of, of attention at hand, and there's also a an ability to practice thought, which is far more doable and valuable than we might be um, understanding at the moment. I wonder if you can uh, make a little bit more concrete when you talk about the um, need to be comfortable with or embrace uncertainty. Um, could you give an example or, or two of that to help me understand uh, you know, what, what you mean by that and how it can be important or helpful to people in their lives? Well, most reflection begins uh, with a moment of uncertainty. Um, for instance, you know, when we are, as usual, following the routine of our lives and we're making unconscious decisions where we get coffee and, and where to park the car and what we're going to have for dinner even. I mean, these are just really, you know, really automatic behaviors. We don't have to think very hard. When something jumps out at us or something takes a big turn, an argument in a relationship or a really difficult, a client leaves at work, you know, a murky, muddy problem, um, the, you know, there, that call that creates uncertainty in the human creature. And that's the moment when we can choose to either jump to conclusion and run with it or Mm -hmm. pause, uh, as, um, you know, in evolutionary terms, you know, humans have certain instincts like fight or flight and also to freeze. That was, you know, what the animal did to gather more information. And that's evolved into this capacity to reflect. Um, so uncertainty is that moment when, uh, things do look uncertain. Um, but it's also a moment when you can, choose between multiple possibilities or just the first thing at hand. And so one of the most important parts of reflecting is understanding different options. Um, You know, again, in the medical world, uh, young doctors who are taught to reflect um, show far less signs of these kind of heuristic biases. Um, They're able to see symptoms that are um, really uh, hidden. Uh, for instance, in a case of uh, someone who has a heart attack, but they don't have chest pains, it's very hard usual, usually for doctors. If they're taught to reflect for just 10 minutes, their mind is able to, you know, iteratively go through the possibilities, test and understand them. And all this is very, very hard to do, actually. But sure. it's a it's a kind of a journey of uncertainty. Um, and, you know, this this idea of not knowing can be, um, again, in a concrete way, putting your work aside when it's when you're when you're stuck or when your impact go for a walk. That means you're allowing yourself not to know for that particular point in time or in in the vein of the tolerance that's so sorely needed in our country, um, it's re- re- tolerance is really to me not just living and letting be. It's actually a very um, you know complicated kind of practice of reflection. But basically, um, the not knowing is um, we we categorize people so instantaneously as us versus them. It's absolutely astonishing. It's so quick and it's so unconscious. And we actually, our behavior changes. If you're white and you see a black face, 
you remember that face less. You um, don't process the features in a just gestalt way. Um, mm-hmm. Process a face of your own kind uh, in a very, very different and more granular way, which leads to mm-hmm. memory and individuality. Well, moving beyond that is really a matter of not knowing. I'm, I don't know that person. So one of the uh, ways in which you can boost tolerance is just by thinking of others as individuals. Then people begin to get to know, you know, so you see someone walking down the street in a kind of hoodie and you're making assumptions about them on a dark night. You see them as an individual and then you're saying, well, I don't know them. So this is the not knowing is extremely important to basically what I'm, uh, what I'm saying is to the open mind, opening our mind and then going forward. That's really what not knowing is about. Yeah. Now, now I can see how this takes us back to the beginning of the conversation with how can you begin to see someone as an individual and if you are not taking the time or don't have the time uh, or if you're exposing yourself to constant other stimulus, right? There's no opportunity to reflect. Exactly. You're cutting, you're abbreviating what are what processes in thinking that do take time and that constant abbreviation has inc- incredible repercussions on all of what we've been talking about, which is the ability to think and the ability to discern the ability to um, basically build knowledge. I mean, the, the studies show um, that creativity has fallen from kindergarten to adults since the 1980s, precipitously in the United States. And these are the best possible longitudinal measures. And, and um, what, But the score that's fallen the most is something called elaboration. And that mm. is, there's been a 40% drop over time in both children and adults. That's the ability to put flesh on an idea, to follow something through, to persist, to not, you know, cut short what can be these astonishing capacities that we all have to think. And um, I think that it doesn't take much, but we have to get beyond the idea that, you know, quick is successful, that signs of actually signs of deliberation and CEOs and political leaders are actually, um, you know, research shows that's correlated uh, in people's minds with weakness and incompetence, even when they are Mm -hmm. deliberating about something they don't know anything about. So we have to change these values related to speed, related to multitasking, related to what kind of thinking and what productivity is. And people have told me, teachers, when I go talking around, you know, the world and the United States, teachers in particular, others, even teachers, though, have told me if they were ever caught sitting and just thinking it would look like they were doing nothing and therefore um, they just don't dare sit and think. Wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that is shocking. And you've, you've given examples in which people might spend as little as a minute or a few minutes pausing. We're not necessarily, as you said, talking about hours or days on a retreat, although that might be something someone could do. Sometimes it might be as little as a few minutes, it sounds like. It could be enough to help with that kind of reflective thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, that's been shown in so many different situations. I know one doctor who also does research into mindfulness, and he pauses just a moment before he opens the door into the next room to see the next patient. And that's really changed the way he works. Um, and that's a very, very, and it's also, it's allowing our mind to catch up with our body. We're racing, 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 racing. It's sort of trying to put ourselves back together again. And um, I mean, the other thing I think that is sort of Buddhist or interesting about this um, pa- notion of pause, or I should say just culturally human, is that, um, you know, there is throughout so many different societies, both East and West, the idea of um, suspended judgment. So the pause as the mark, as the uh, beginning point of the open mind means that you're suspending judgment. The ancient Greeks called this epoche, 
Um, it's mm-hmm. related to beginner's mind in Zen. Um, you know, there time after time I've seen very many different societies that all have this um, value about suspending judgment, not leaping to a conclusion. Basically, I guess you could say, but it's it's really hard, and it doesn't lead to indifference. It can at the extreme. You're not trying to say on the sidelines of life. It's not an inactivity, although it seems to be in our current society. This is really, uh, you know, thinking in pursuit of a better answer. You're pausing in pursuit of thinking and thinking in pursuit of a better answer. It's not, um, you know, uh, inactive in, in activity and it's not emptiness. It's interesting when you talk about the need to pause before making a judgment. In my day job, I'm a lawyer. And so, of course, we use the term judgment in my field. And I remember when I started, there was a more senior lawyer who told me the story of a lawyer he knew who, through the 1950s, refused to have a telephone on his desk, <laughs> would only communicate with clients in person at a scheduled meeting, no walk-ins, would talk to them and would never give advice at the meeting. He would require that the client go away and he would then write a letter. I think he had some rule about how many days later it would need to be at a minimum. Uh, And he would only do it in writing. And that was his reasoning that he, in order to give competent counsel to his clients, needed that time to pause and reflect. And these days, I know, whether it's true or not, the feeling amongst most lawyers is that none of us would ever get another client if we insisted on interacting with clients that way now. <laughs> right. Well, but it's interesting, though, again, going back to that consulting work, um, you know, people in the consulting business were absolutely petrified that clients would find out that they were taking one night off a week. And yet they did, you know, basically it turned out that the client's uh, were um, happy to have the better type, the better quality of work. I've also heard this in terms of flexible work hours in the accounting um, world. The ac- accountants have been pioneers in in terms of flexible work arrangements. Again, the clients were thrilled to have the better work, not the linear. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, I guess we all need to stitch together from the our own threads of our lives and our voices the the fabric of a new kind of society and i i do really believe that can be done because when things get dark they're going they're going to to you know be a dawn there's going to be a dawn and and renaissances do follow dark ages and i think that that's you know really important i i hear stories after stories about the people who perhaps speak less and think more as being the ones who do get ahead <laughs> mm-hmm. or react less. Yes, I should say. Yeah. Well, on that note uh, of a hopeful future, I'd like to thank you for taking this time to talk to me about attention and distraction and reflective and creative thought and, and everything you see in the present and the future of it. Uh, we're all looking forward to seeing and reading your new book, Beyond Certainty, when it comes out later this year. So thanks, Maggie. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Maggie Jackson, author of Distracted. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. Please join us for our next episode, where I'll interview Dr. Judson Brewer, Director of Research at the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness, addiction expert, and author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. 